I'd like you to imagine something with me. <clears throat> I'd like you to imagine yourself in Greece. And, uh, you know, we're just a few miles inland from the ocean. Maybe we'll say 11 miles just for the fun of it. And, and this is not like today. This is 2,000 years ago. So, so imagine Greece in ancient times. Now, you've come to this area because you're a business person and you want to be near enough to the, uh, to the trade zones uh, to be able to trade with all of Palestine and with all of Europe at the same time. And this particular spot really close to the, to the Mediterranean uh, has, gives you that opportunity. And so you've moved your business um, and created some uh, opportunity for growth. And, and just to make things interesting, let's say that you, before you moved to Greece, you're an immigrant here, before you moved to Greece, you were a convert to Judaism, just to make things interesting. Now, you're in a city called Philippi, and Philippi is, uh, it's kind of a military town. Years and years and years and years ago, like hundreds of years before, um, Alexander the Great's dad, Philip, was the king of Macedonia, and this was his town, which is why it's called Philippi, named after Philip. And it's kind of been a war town ever since. Alexander the Great did his thing, now Rome is in charge. And interestingly, Rome, uh, the, the soldiers that retire from the Roman military, uh, some of them come to Philippi. And Rome promised these people that if they uh, serve for a certain time in the military that they can get citizenship in Rome. And so they retire to Philippi with their citizenship, their Roman citizenship. And so in a way, Philippi is a perfect town for you because it's not the, the uh, expensive uh, town right near the ocean or right, right near the Mediterranean. Um, it, it's a little cheaper. Real estate's easier for you to come by so you can um, grow your business uh, efficiently. But it's also a town with a little bit of money uh, because of these retirees. So it's a perfect spot for you, except there aren't really any other Jews there, maybe a couple, but no, there's no synagogue, there's no place for worship. And so you go, uh, have, have you found a few uh, people that, that worship um, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and so together you go down to the nearby river, um, the Kefalari River, which really isn't a river. It's more a stream, but, but it's a beautiful spot with some trees and some shade. And you go there and you pray together every Sabbath. Now, you may have um, perceived that I'm asking you to envision the story of Lydia. Anybody caught on to that? couple of you, all right. Well, this particular day, you're by the river and a group of, of uh, new people show up and it happens to be Paul and a few of his friends. And they start to talk, they believe in, in the same God you do, but they start to talk about the Messiah having come. And this is news to you, you hadn't heard this before and you've, you've got some serious questions. And so you, you ask these questions to them and one by one, they respond and they give you clear answers and you can see that Jesus is the Messiah from Scripture. And you've been there a lot longer than you had planned, um, but before you leave, you give your heart to Jesus. You're all in for Christ 
And you and your family and some of the friends that were there with you are baptized. And it's late in the day. Your picnic lunch has uh, been digested and everybody's getting hungry now. And so you invite them home to your house. Now, you're a businesswoman or man, if you're imagining yourself here. And uh, so you invite these people back to your home. And uh, pretty soon your home becomes not just a place of business. It becomes a place of hospitality. And before long, it becomes a, a thriving little house church. Paul and his friends start to share the gospel in the community, and uh, you can read the story in Acts chapter 16. Things happen that maybe are not so exciting because uh, they get in trouble. There's a little girl, not a girl, little girl, but a girl who does, she's a slave and she does these um, fortune-telling things, and her owners make money from her, while Paul, after she bugs them for a while, gets tired of her, and he casts the demon out. That's an interesting story. You'll have to read it in, the, in Acts chapter 16. Uh, but he casts the demon out, and she's no longer a fortune teller, and her masters got mad. And so a whole crowd c- gets together, and uh, they, they throw them into jail. Paul and Silas are singing hymns and quoting scriptures, and in the middle of the night, a, an angel comes, um, there's an earthquake, shakes things up, doors are opened, the, the stocks that they've been put into, by the way, it says they stripped them of their clothes, they beat them, and then they put them in stocks. This was not a comfortable experience for Paul and Silas. And so as they're praying and they're, and they're singing hymns and quoting scriptures to each other to distract themselves from the pain, an angel delivers them. The stocks fall off and they're free. And then they see the jailer about to kill himself, certain that he'll be killed in the morning when it's found out that he's allowed all the prisoners to flee. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. The man is so surprised that uh, there's this interchange, and Paul's able to tell him about Jesus. And he gives his heart to Jesus. By the morning, him and his whole family are baptized and Paul goes back to the, to, to the little church that's in your home, and there's a new believer that comes with him. But he has to leave. The, the town is had enough of Paul, and so they sent him away. And that leaves you and your fledgling little group of new believers all alone in Philippi. This is the setting for the little book that we find in the New Testament called, appropriately enough, Philippians. And I'd like to turn there and do a little bit of study today. Now, if you were in Philippi and uh, you had received a letter from, uh, from Paul, then you probably would read that together. And so we're going to do a little bit of that. We're not going to read the entire letter today, um, but uh, it, it'd be kind of like if I wrote a sermon and then one of the elders read the sermon on my behalf. That's kind of what was happening in the early church with Paul's letters. And so we're going to do a little bit of reading today, and we're going to pause here and there to make sure we have our bearings, and then we're going to apply it and figure out how this uh, connects with our experience at the Riverview Church in Pasco, Washington in 2023. Now, it's important, I think, to notice that um, Paul, he continued on in his ministry for some years after the Philippian church was planted. And he ends up in Rome. Uh, this is about 62, maybe 63 AD, probably about 10 years after the Philippian church had been planted. And that's when they get this letter. 
Now let's start in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You'll notice that Paul begins with this blessing, grace to you. And it's a pretty standard blessing. It's not something extraordinary, but I think it's very important for the context of what Paul is describing. And it kind of sets the foundation for everything else. And we'll notice a little bit more about why that foundation needs to be set in just a few minutes. Also, I want you to notice how Paul weaves in this idea from the very beginning about the partnership in the gospel. If you received an email from somebody and you reply to that email, usually there's something that connects what they sent you with what you send back. There's a, a connection that you're trying to make, uh, and, and Paul is doing that in this moment, and we'll find out a little bit more uh, about that detail, what that connection was, but he, he talks about this partnership, and it, it ends up being a gift that they've given him, and he is responding to that gift. A guy named Epaphroditus sent him some, or brought him some stuff from the Philippian church. I'm assuming there's money or resources of some kind. And he's responding in this letter to that kind gift that they gave him. Let's keep reading in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Notice those two themes stuck with us, grace and partnership. And then he continues on, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that you love, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's lots of things that we could chase, uh, threads that we could pull on in this uh, particular paragraph. He talks about how Jesus will complete the work of salvation in our lives. We could preach a whole sermon on that one. Um, that they share with Paul in the grace of God, uh, another good subject to explore. Or that they participated in the, both the responsibility and the suffering that comes with the gospel mission. Also a good topic, but I'd like to focus on verse 11, where he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a thread that Paul keeps coming back to over and over again, and so I want to spend some time on it. Um, Paul's desire for the church is that they would, as a congregation, be filled with the fruit, and, and what fruit is this that he wants them to be filled with? The fruit of righteousness, specifically the, the fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, to God's praise alone. I want you to keep that idea in your mind, the idea of fruit, uh, because it, it continues to be important as we keep reading. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has, all, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I'm going to skip forward a few uh, verses. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, when, when Paul makes this statement that um, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel, he's talking about these circumstances. He's in prison. The, Paul's ministry goes on for about 20 years, and he takes several trips. Twice he visits Philippi, and uh, eventually he ends up in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he has... Uh, powerful message that he's giving around the temple, and people don't like it. There's persecution has started to come in, in that area, and uh, they, they are very unhappy with Paul, and so they attack him, and the Roman guards actually take him to prison to protect him, so he's not killed by the Jews. But when he's in prison, he pleads to have his case heard by the emperor, which is his right as a Roman citizen, but they would have let him go if he hadn't pled to the emperor. So having to ask for his case to be heard by the emperor, they have to send him to Rome now, which is kind of something that's been on Paul's heart. He wants to talk to the emperor about the gospel. And so this is an exciting opportunity for him. And they, they do, they ship him over to Rome. And thankfully he's in a house church, I mean a house, house arrest. He's under house arrest. Um, he's not in the dirty, dingy dungeon, uh, which is basically just a carved out piece of a rock. Um, there, there's a, a place in Rome that you can go visit today, and it's a, a prison where the prison guards would stand on top on the, the main floor, and there's a hole about big enough to get a, a person my size through, and uh, down below them is the dungeon, and that's the only access, that small little hole. Not a good place. So Paul is in a much better place than that, but, but still, he's under arrest, waiting for a trial. And in that context, he says, this has served to advance the gospel. All this stuff that's happened to me is something that's good. Now, remember that part earlier where we talked about fruits of righteousness? I think it would be fair to say that Paul's um, mindset of pursuing the gospel is one of these fruits of righteousness. Like he's a missionary taking the gospel to the world, and he's even willing to take difficult uh, things and see them as a good thing for God if it advances the gospel. This is his mindset, and I think one of the fruits of righteousness that we could point to. In a, the next few verses, Paul talks about how uh, there's benefits for him personally if he were to die, because the next thing he would know would be Jesus. And that's a delightful thought for him. But he says, I think it would be better if I were to live and continue to minister to you. That's what he would prefer. And in fact, he goes on in, in verse 25 to say, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, you pro for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Imagine, this is a 10-year-old church that he's talking to. He's like, I'd really like to invest more in you. And yet we know from history that Paul never did see the Philippian church again. He was executed um, after a couple years of house arrest. Now, 
while Paul didn't know that would be the outcome, he was willing to submit himself to the service of the gospel, even if it meant that his life was taken. And now I want to read this final paragraph in chapter 1, starting in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. From the beginning of their story together, Paul and the Philippian church suffered persecution. Paul was thrown in prison right there at the beginning when Lydia had offered him hospitality and that house church was just getting started. And apparently, throughout the, the years of his ministry, they had contributed financially or sent some uh, a person or, or some way they had contributed to his uh, gospel mission, his missionary efforts. And if you look at this story, um, you, you see this idea that Paul is asking them to live a, a life that's well-lived. He says this, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ Jesus that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. He's saying, listen, there's, there's something that is really important here. Don't just take the gospel, but live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Worthy. That's an interesting word. And it's hard to connect that with humanity. How many humans are worthy of God's grace and goodness? In fact, it's the definition of grace that you are not worthy of it. Paul uses that phrase or that word grace twice right at the very beginning, and then four more times he talks about the gospel just in this few verses that we read. And the gospel is the definition of grace. The gospel is that God came to take somebody who is unworthy and give him life through his forgiveness and gift. Completely unworthy. That's the definition of grace. And, and so this idea of the gospel being um, a big focus of Paul's makes it kind of strange that he would say, live in a, a manner that's worthy of the gospel. How can you be worthy of something you're by definition, not worthy of. What could he mean? Now, since this is the beginning of a letter, you can bet that he's probably going to develop these ideas as he continues writing. Um, but before we look at the, the, the explanation of this, it's also helpful to look at things this author has written to other people and see if there's something else that we can grab. Maybe there are themes that are like this in other books that he's written. And in this case, Paul has written four letters while he's in prison. Uh, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians, and a letter to a guy named Philemon about his servant Onesimus. These four letters are called the prison letters. Now, he probably wrote more letters than that. These are just the four that, that God chose to preserve in the New Testament. 
but let's look at a, a couple examples. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we find a similar passage, this idea of being worthy of the gospel. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in Colossians 1.10, he says something similar. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's interesting. Do you see the connection that he's making between worthy of the gospel and fruit? There's, there's something he's trying to, to get across here. In Ephesians chapter 4, he goes on to describe what he means by being worthy of the calling. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice these descriptions of what it means to be worthy or to walk, how does he put it, to walk in a manner worthy. Unity, humility, gentleness, love, and patience. Now, what about Colossians? What does he say to them? Verses 9 to 11 describes this. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy." In this, in this passage, he's talking to the Colossians and, and saying that fruit of righteousness, this manner, walking in a manner worthy of the calling, includes spiritual wisdom and understanding. This good works, broad uh, uh, definition there, and, and then uh, patience, endurance, and joy. So these are some of the things. But let's go back to Philippians and let's see if there's something there, if there's some similar themes that he's bringing out about this idea of worthy and fruit-bearing. Philippians 2 continues with a beautiful description of the character of Jesus and how Jesus came and gave everything for us. But then in verse 12, he, he develops this idea of living a life worthy of the gospel by saying this, "'Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, notice the connection he makes. He says, work out your own salvation. It is God who works in you to will and to do. And then he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Unity, not grumbling, not arguing. And then there's that famous verse in Philippians 4.8. He adds these interesting things. New Living Translation has a way to put it that I just think is, is gripping. He says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Paul is um, talking about these, these ideas of living a life with fruit. And he incorporates all these interesting things. They're, they're all relational things. Have you noticed? Unity, love, patience. It's important to notice something about them, though. 
Um, in every circumstance, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, every one of them, he ties this idea of bearing fruit with a, an association with Jesus. For example, in Philippians 1.11, he, he talks about this fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. Or in Ephesians 4.7, he says, by grace was given, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he says in, in Colossians, he talks about this being the inheritance of the saints. And inheritance is something that's given to you. And so we have this, this uh, idea that God's grace is what gives us fruit. So maybe what Paul is saying is not that, that we should be worthy in order to receive God's grace, but that because we've seen, received God's grace, we have the opportunity to walk differently, to walk in a worthy way. There is no place in his letters that Paul ever departs from the idea that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God alone. This is a, a truth in Paul's mind. It is fixed. This is what the gospel is. But if we begin as unworthy sinners, and if we're saved by God's grace to his glory alone, how can we be worthy, right? It's that response that Paul is talking about. What do we do with the grace that God has given us? And I don't think this is a nebulous thing. It's not like a, well, um, eventually these kinds of loving behaviors or kind behaviors or whatever it is are going to come out of us. In, in, a, in a way, that's true. But there's a choice that we have, um, an opportunity. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story of a, a man who has lots and lots and lots of debt. The Bible says that if you are, are in debt, the debtor is slave or to the, the lender, right? So we have a slave, and he has so much debt that he can't in his lifetime repay it. The account comes up before the king. The king says, brings the man in front of him, and he says, please pay all that, that you owe me. Um, your account is overdue. And the man's like, I can't. Please give me, give me grace. Give me time. I'll pay it eventually. And the king he actually forgives the entire debt. And he walks away from there a free man. The only thing he owed the king was gratitude. But what does he do? Do you remember this story? What does he do next? Matthew chapter 18, verse 28 tells it uh, like this. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him, begged for a little more time, be patient with me and I will pay it all. This is exactly what he said to the king, isn't it? And uh, he, the, the, the man said he wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Would it be fair to say that this man did not live in a manner worthy of the grace that he'd received from the king? I think, I think so. He didn't give grace to others with the same generosity that the king had given him grace. And that, that man's choice had an impact that was devastating to him, which I think is important for us to notice about this story. In verse 31, it says, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, 
I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. There is a discipline that Jesus invites into the Christian experience, a discipline of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not a uh, life in order to be saved, but it's a life in response to the amazing, unfathomable gift of God's forgiveness and grace. Have we really received God's grace and forgiveness if we don't also give it away to others? I think not. Bearing this fruit of God's grace is a requirement for every Christian, but the requirement is a little anti-intuitive. We don't have the power to bear this kind of fruit. We are naturally selfish, and it's true, we don't have that power, but we do have the choice. As Christians, we aren't forced to walk through life forgiving others and filled with peace and patience and kindness and love. God doesn't force us to have those things. It's not that we give our life to Jesus and without any um, willpower of our own, we suddenly are nicer people. That's not exactly what happens. Um, We get to choose. I'm going to respond to this in a way that God has responded to me. I'm going to give grace away like I've been given Now, we can't just say to ourselves, I'm going to be patient today. Probably you will find things that will test your patience if you do that, and you will find that that you are maybe even less patient. It it gets magnified. So what, what, what Paul is talking about, I think, is a reference to what Jesus told us in John chapter 15 when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches, whoever, what's the word? Abides. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding with Jesus is a discipline of staying near Christ. It means uh, spending time in prayer. It means carving out time in your day to to spend time absorbing words from God uh, through his word. Spending time with Jesus makes all the difference. Now imagine what would have happened if that forgiven debtor had stuck around